there was an old, old urban legend that the Crusaders, when they went off to fight the Muslims, would leave their wives locked in chastity belts so they couldn't be unfaithful in the years that the men were gone. Well, one of these Crusaders left his wife in a chastity belt and uh, left the key to his very best friend in case he died during the Crusades. He handed off the key and rode away, but he had only ridden a few miles when his friend, riding hard, caught up with him and said, you gave me the wrong key. It's weird telling jokes on Zoom. I'm sure you're all cracking up laughing, and that's a rather crude joke for uh, a Sunday morning. But marriage in the ancient world was, to a significant degree, it was about men locking up their sexual prerogatives over a particular woman. And had they been invented in Jesus' day, a chastity belt would likely have been used because wives were seen as property. And it was terribly shameful for a man to have an unfaithful wife. Now men, as you might imagine from that passage and from just your understanding of history, you would know that men held all the cards as far as marrying went, as well as all the cards in most every other area of society. But in marriage, they were locking up sexual privileges with one woman, but it wouldn't necessarily preclude additional sexual escapades. He was free to sow his wild oats with reasonable impunity because their wives couldn't divorce them for any reason, though a husband could divorce a wife for virtually any reason. Now, if a man was a decent chap, apart from the no-cause divorce thing, if he was a a decent chap, instead of leaving a woman destitute and homeless, which divorce often did, he might give her a, a lump sum payment, but this was not to exceed, of course, the dowry that had been paid to him previously by her family. The woman or the wife in this scenario is not nearly so advantaged. A woman had very little agency to determine who she would marry. This was decided for her at often a very, very young age. And once married, if the husband wasn't happy with her, she could be summarily dismissed. Even if he was abusive or violent, she was essentially stuck in the marriage. And her status was similar to that of a child in an average marriage but like a slave in many. Jesus is about to upset these power dynamics, breaking not only with the standard religious interpretation of the day, but in granting what would be a quantum leap forward in women's rights. He would also be upending the established and widespread and religiously supported social order. So, smash the patriarchy, as they say. The Pharisees have come to test Jesus on the circumstances of divorce. 
And this wasn't an issue that the Pharisees sort of pulled out of thin air. This was a hotly debated issue. This would be the equivalent of asking a pastor today what they thought about gay marriage. Well, Jesus, never afraid to cross swords with the Pharisees or to subvert conventional religious wisdom, he answers the question, but he answers it in two parts, one public and one private. In the public setting, Jesus points the Pharisees back to Scripture and asks them, well, what did Moses say about divorce? Moses, they respond, permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus says, yeah, but. This was an accommodation, you see, that was granted because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, who is the your? Who do these hard hearts belong to? It's not perfectly clear because While he's addressing the Pharisees, they, of course, weren't around in the time of Moses. It seems that what Jesus is doing is he's connecting the the Pharisees' present hard-heartedness to the infamous hard-heartedness of Israel in the time of Moses, to whom Moses gave the accommodation of divorce in Deuteronomy. Well, Jesus acknowledges Deuteronomy But he says, let's go back even further in the Torah. He begins to undermine pharisaical hermeneutics by going back to the Bible, as they say. Jesus, it seems, is wed, pardon the pun, to the ancient text itself. But he believes that embedded in that ancient text, in the scriptures, is God's commitment to human well-being and flourishing, especially the weak. Jesus here, it's interesting to me, is sort of a a radical conservative. Or to borrow terms that will inevitably be rehearsed over and over as we approach another Supreme Court confirmation debate, Jesus is both an originalist and an activist. Jesus you see, subverts patriarchy not to be trendy or relevant or to be able to gather a larger crowd. He's undermining the assumptions of patriarchy because of Scripture. Now, where do we see this? The the Mosaic Law tolerated a highly unequal situation in marriage, as we talked about and as was read in the Gospels, where the woman was more or less an object that was highly, if not completely, dependent upon her husband's perpetual goodwill because if he got cross with her, he could dismiss her. And if she doesn't have a family that would receive her back, she was left on the streets. Now, the Pharisees would have defended that kind of situation, that kind of marriage based upon Scripture as well as their own interpretive tradition. Jesus acknowledges Deuteronomy, but he gives context, always important to understanding the text, saying that this allowance of divorce was an accommodation to the reality of human sin. But let's go back, he says, even farther to Genesis, and let's talk about the ideal. What is marriage meant to be? And there it says that God 
created marriage. He created humanity, male and female. In other words, male and female were commissioned and called together to follow God and to do his work. And Jesus goes on to say that when a husband and a wife are joined together in marriage, it is not a relationship of convenience. It is not a relationship about utility, about propagating the husband's name. But both husband and wife become one flesh. One flesh upon the authority of God himself. So no one should presume to unjoin that which God has joined together. Even a man with tacit permission from Moses himself. This is a radical escalation of the status of women everywhere, married or not. Women are not objects for the sexual gratification of men, but are created as equal partners with them and subjects of God's equal concern. It's impossible to overstate how radical this was. But Jesus goes further because he moves into the private sphere. Jesus and his disciples then retreat to an unknown home, and they continue the topic privately. They ask Jesus to expound further, and Jesus answers by talking specifically about adultery, which was a common enough reason for divorce. And Jesus states that a man cannot divorce a woman and marry another without committing adultery against who? Against her. Now, this seems fairly unsurprising. It seems logical to us, but this was a radical departure from Jewish law at the time. You see, if a man committed adultery, the offended party wasn't the wife, but it was the husband of the woman he slept with. The other husband had been cheated, as it were, out of his exclusive sexual rights to his wife. And that was why adultery was so bad, not because it offended the wife, not because the husband cheated on the woman. Well, then in the second clause, Jesus doesn't merely modify Jewish religious law, which stipulated that only men could initiate divorce. He directly contradicts it. Now, Mark sort of buries the lead here in verse 12, but hidden inside this incredibly stern warning against divorce, against adultery, he grants women the right to divorce their husbands. And this was absolutely revolutionary because it granted a woman in some small way agency over her own existence, that she did not function as property in the marriage, but actually had the right to divorce what would have been considered the property owner to have her own personal agency in marriage, to be able to divorce a husband who was abusive. This was revolutionary. And it gives us a sense of Jesus' care for the disadvantage. When he's asked about divorce, he could have honored tradition. He could have answered according to conventional wisdom of the time, but he refuses to overlook 
the unjust power differentials that existed in marriages. We've seen Jesus' willingness throughout Mark to alter or overturn or contradict religious orthodoxy on behalf of the least and the lost and of the last. And here he's willing to undermine what was a sacred practice on behalf of the vulnerable party, women who were objectified and used. So what should we make of this? How should we respond? Well, surely we can see the the tragedy of divorce, even without the help of a religious text, just by observing its painful fallout among our friends and our family and even perhaps in our own lives. But Jesus is telling us the why, the why it's so painful and traumatic. Because marriage, he is saying essentially, is a spiritual entity. The wedding ceremony itself recognizes more than it does create a spiritual union because it's established by God himself. And the marriage, in a sense, just celebrates what God has brought together. We should not presume, therefore, to separate what God has brought together. The husband and wife in marriage, Jesus says, cease to be two separate entities and become instead one flesh together. Now, despite that, we do see that the prohibition of divorce was never absolute. Divorce wasn't entirely proscribed even by Moses. But surely it is the nuclear option. And it's always presented in Scripture as a tolerable but terrible solution to an otherwise intractable problem. We should not assume that what is legal or permissible is, in fact, good. Now, as a pastor for almost two decades, I've walked more people through divorce than I care to count. And one of the things that's frustrating in this is not merely how many marriages end in divorce, even in the church. One of the things that's frustrating alongside that is that the the pastor's role is often highly curtailed because by the time a couple comes in for help, the marriage is already, if not lost, it's on life support. And the likelihood of turning the ship back to port at that point is incredibly unlikely. So don't do that. Don't wait until your marriage is on life support. Don't wait until it's unsalvageable before saying that, hey, we we need help over here. Living with another human being in marriage is hard, and we should acknowledge that. Katie and I have gotten coaching, coaching and, and therapy at various times in our marriage, and it's not and it, it not only helped to carry us through difficult seasons, but it's often but it's also given us tools in the the times that are normal, the times that are good that we can use to build and construct a very fulfilling marriage. But marriage is hard. 
And we should see the church. We should see each other. You should see your pastor as an asset to construct not only a marriage that simply survives, but one that is is thriving. But when a couple comes to talk with me, finally, it often becomes clear over a couple of sessions that the marriage is unsalvageable. And here's where we have to um, use, utilize the nuances of Scripture. Here's where actually the nuances of Scripture help us. Because the job at that point, my job, isn't to shame them in order to keep them married. It isn't to keep reiterating the let no one separate clause. Instead, it's to try and guide the husband and wife to a place of civility, to work through the circumstances of divorce in a manner that preserves a functional, if not necessarily, a friendly relationship. And I share this with you because the goal of marriage is not simply to stay married. The goal of marriage is one flesh unity. It is for two humans to enable each other to flourish in ways that they wouldn't otherwise to love one another in an intimate space and to learn how to serve the world together. If the goal of marriage counseling, therefore, especially during critical care, is to simply prevent divorce at all costs, people are going to get hurt. Usually the person that is disadvantaged by the power dynamics in the relationship. The only thing binding the couple together in many cases, besides assets and children, is the fact that they had a wedding ceremony at some point in the past. So trying to force a couple to stay married can become an effort to, to put it crudely, to protect a piece of paper rather than pursuing the long-term health of the two parties, even if that long-term health doesn't include them staying married. It may be weird to hear a pastor say this, but sometimes people are more happy and more whole on the other side of a contentious, painful divorce. Now, having said that, there is tension, there is nuance, and we need to acknowledge that because I've never seen a divorce without significant and lasting heartbreak, affecting not only the the couple itself, but their children, their extended family, and their church communities. And you can tell just how painful a divorce is by recognizing that even a couple's adult children are often traumatized by their parents' divorce. All of this is why we are told that God hates divorce. It is a profound spiritual and social tragedy. It is, as Jesus says, like flesh being ripped apart, which, as it turns out, is exactly what Jesus experienced for his bride, for the church, for you and for me. He unites himself to us in marriage. And yet when we are unfaithful to him, he does not divorce us. He holds on to us.
but neither does he merely stay. He offers himself, you see, as a living sacrifice, even going to a cross and having his flesh torn apart in order to love us, to protect us, and to forgive us. And we see, friends, in the meal that we are about to consume together, we see an image of marriage where God says to all of us, my life for yours, for better or for worse, I will be with you forever. And friends, that is our hope, not only for struggling marriages everywhere, but it is our hope in life. It is our hope in the trying times that we live in presently. And so let's go to God now in prayer and let's feed upon him in a way that we pray he would nurture us, nourish us into into a thriving relationship, not only with him, but with our spouses and with each other. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would heal hurting marriages. And no matter how our marriages might present, no matter how many of us in the congregation might envy the apparent closeness and intimacy of a marriage in our church, we know that while there are indeed wonderful marriages, that all marriages struggle. All marriages are difficult. And so I pray, first of all, that, Father, you would meet us in those difficult places. And, Father, I pray also that marriages that are struggling, especially in acute ways, would find the help that they need. Father, I pray that somehow that the church would be an institution of care that, that guards marriages, that guards relationships, that changes the statistics, a place where marriage is thought to, on average, thrive rather than, on average, lead to divorce. We pray in town might be a place of hope, a place of restoration like that. We pray for people in our congregation who have been divorced, either are remarried now or are still single, and we pray that they would not receive shame from this passage, but that they too would receive hope, that they can be restored, that you do not look upon them as a second-class citizen in the kingdom. And for those who are, are single by, by choice or by circumstance, never having married, I pray that you would let them too see their lives as equally valuable to you and to your church and to your kingdom. And we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.